Our uh, sermon text is uh, Matthew 7, verses uh, 1 through uh, 12, and it's on page, you'll find it on page 812 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of God. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened." Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for uh, showing us more of your heart through this passage. It's a passage uh, that our culture likes and misunderstands. And we've been influenced by that. And we need your instruction now by the Spirit. Will you act for us and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Will you build up your children, Father, and would you also save the lost and give sight to the blind? And will you draw all of our vision together upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his goodness and his sufficiency as the great judge of men who himself has been judged for men. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're uh, now at the point in the Sermon on the Mount where uh, we've, we've reached the text, the verse that is probably among the most quoted uh, teachings of Jesus and the uh, at the same time, among the least understood teachings of Jesus. is verse 1 in our text, right? Uh, judge not that you be not judged. Uh, we hear that all the time. We'll also hear all the time in our culture, verse 12. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And both of them are lifted out of their context and interpreted in ways regularly, and even as recently as this week in ways that are completely inconsistent with the way Jesus uh, intends them to be understood. Uh, we, it doesn't surprise me that verse 1 
in particular would be a very popular verse in our day. Um, we live in, a, in an age of ultra-tolerance, right? And uh, in which uh, anything goes, except one thing. There's only one thing that doesn't go, and that's intolerance, right? And intolerance is defined as anything less uh, than the total, unreserved, unqualified affirmation by me of whatever you want to be, whenever you want to be it, however you want to be it, just as long as you don't cause harm to anyone. In other words, people interpret, misunderstand what Jesus is saying in verse 1 this way. They reduce it down to this. Mind your own business. Now, I, I can't think of a, a more wrong-headed way of understanding what Jesus is saying here. People interpret verse 1 to mean there's only one thing that Jesus is prohibiting. He allows everything else, but he prohibits this one thing, judging other people. And you know what? That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. And you say, what do you mean? It says, judge not that you be not judged. Well, let your eyes drift down to verse 6. A command from the same Jesus. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, now listen. I'm going to explain verse 6 in greater detail in a minute, but you can tell right away that whatever, whatever verse 1 means... It doesn't mean you are prohibited from judging other people because Jesus, in verse 6, just tells you he thinks that there's categories of people who are dogs and categories of people who are pigs. And there's a difference between what is holy and what is unholy, what is treasure and what is trash. And Jesus, the same Jesus who commands us in verse 1, gives us a command in verse 6, don't you dare give your pearls to pigs. And don't you dare give what is holy to dogs. Now, at this point, I just want you to see the problem. I want you to feel right away that whatever understanding you had of verse 1 that you brought in here with the frosting that our culture has slapped onto it for you, that understand you know now that that can't be right. So what I want to do this morning with you is I want, you, I want to look at this whole issue of judging under three headings. Jesus tells us three things about judging other people in this passage. He says to us, there is a disease in our judging. He tells us that there is a healing for our judging. And finally, he shows us that there is a mission for our judging. Let's think first about the disease in our judging. And, and before I get into the verses, let me, let me set an analogy before you. Electricity. Now, if you use, ele- how many of you are for electricity? Okay, how many of you are against electricity? Well, see, that's a good answer. You know what's interesting about that? None of you are against it, even though you know it's very dangerous if you misuse it, right? If you use electricity right, if you use it, if you, if you respect its power, 
it has very constructive uses. But if you do not respect its power, it will have very destructive uses, right? Judging is just like that. It's very powerful. And Jesus shows us in this passage that it has very constructive uses and very destructive ones when it's misused. The problem is not, in other words, that we judge. That's not the problem. The disease in our judging is not the fact that we judge. Jesus is not prohibiting the righteous use of our capacity to judge. Jesus is not prohibiting the righteous use of our critical faculties. Friends, we were made in God's image. And what it means to be made in God's image among all the other things is that we possess, because God possesses them, moral faculties. God is not neutral. God does not obey our culture's understanding of verse 1. And we are made in His image. We were created to judge. We were created to make distinctions, to use our, the moral capacities that God gave us to to observe, and to make distinctions. When God tells Adam, don't eat from this tree, but all the other ones you can eat from. God is um, confirming that he has made Adam and, and Eve, ultimately, in such a way that they are supposed to judge. No, 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 don't... Don't read verse 1 to repudiate the way we've been made. That would be wrong. God is not commanding his disciples. Jesus is not commanding his disciples to mind their own business. He's telling them to be very careful about what they do. Because we were made in God's image and we were given a mission to be fruitful to multiply, to fill the earth, to rule, and to subdue it. And in order to care, as Genesis 1.28, in order to fulfill that mission, we will have to judge between things that are good and things that are not good. We can't fulfill our mission. That's true from creation. Now, we know there's a fall that comes after creation. I'll be there in a minute. But now I want to jump ahead all the way to redemption because I know that some of you are not persuaded. Some of you think I'm overreading this. Well, now open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians 6. I want to show you what God is going to do. Well, one of the things that redemption means is not the eradication of our judging capacity, but it's redemption. So that's why in Luke 22, don't worry, I don't want you to go to Luke 22. Just trust me on this one. In Luke 22, Jesus is sitting down with the disciples and he looks forward to uh, the, 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 the wedding banquet in the kingdom and he says to his disciples, you're going to sit down at table with me and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That, that can't be reconciled with our culture's reading of verse 1, can it? And now look at verse 6, excuse me, chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians, where Paul, you know, there's this, this problem in the Corinthian church where their members are suing each other. Paul, and Paul's remedy for that is way deeper than just don't do it. 
Look at verses 2 and 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? You see, so not only were we created with this capacity, but one of the things that redemption means is that this capacity that defines us as God's image bearers is going to be redeemed. It's going to be healed. But of course, there's a fall, right? And that's where the disease comes in. The problem is not in our judging. The problem is in the disease that has infected our judging. It's in our misuse of that capacity, in its hijacking by sin, right? And what has happened is that our capacity to judge has been hijacked by sin, and sin operates like a little virus, like a virus that globs onto your cell. Here I go, driving again without a license, talking about science. But what I understand about the way viruses work is they're absolutely brilliant. They glob onto a cell, and they turn that otherwise ordinary cell into a virus-making factory. It's absolutely brilliant. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin is a virus of self-exaltation. And when sin gets a hold of the human heart, any faculty in a human being, it reproduces its DNA, which is self-exaltation. So think with me back to the first sin. Adam and Eve sin. God confronts Adam and asks him a simple yes or no question. Did you eat from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, that's a yes or no question. Do you remember what Adam's answer is? The woman whom you gave to me gave me the fruit and I ate. Now, we've read that hundreds of times, but have you ever noticed how that is the prototypical exercise of self-righteousness, self-righteous judging. You notice what Adam does there? He is confronted with the fact of his own sin, and the way he answers it is by pointing out the, the sin of Eve and God's own unrighteousness. He tries to change the subject, which is what self-righteousness is always doing. That's the disease in our judging. Every sin is just like that. Every, every human being now, even those inside the church, and that's Jesus' point. He's talking to his disciples here. He's saying that because of the nature of sin, your judging capacity has been hijacked by sin. You have to, you have to treat it with great care. You have to respect its power for destruction. Because otherwise, what you will do is you will follow sin. You'll do exactly what Adam did, which is to simultaneously maximize the sin of others and minimize your own sin. Right? So you'll, you'll look for the speck in someone else's eye, and you'll ignore the log in your own. Now, you should, you should love the, uh, the sarcastic hyperbole of Jesus Christ. He is He is witty. I mean, you're supposed to laugh. You're supposed to think that's totally ridiculous. And what Jesus means 
for the pastoral impact of that to be is for us to just laugh and then cry at the same time. Because he's right. That's how absurd it is. And Jesus is warning us. He's warning his disciples. He's talking to those who are in his company as his disciples. And he says, hey, one of the things that is going to go on here, even in this circle of my people, is that you guys are going to judge each other. Because this circle is a bunch of sinners. So there's going to be a lot of specks to find. And all of your judging capacity is going to be infected by sin. And you guys are, you're going to do this. Now, what's so interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't just say, so don't do it. Again, just like last week when he was dealing with anxiety, which you might think Christians should be immune from that, right? Well, Jesus didn't think so. Three times he has to tell his own disciples. He's not talking over their shoulders to the, to the, the non-Christians behind them. He's talking to his disciples. Three times he has to say, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Why? Because he knows that even those who belong to him are still subject to that temptation. In the same way, he is warning us here about our misused judging capacity. And he doesn't just say, don't do it. He asks questions. Do you see that? Just like he did last week. He doesn't say, don't look for the speck in your brother's eye. He says, why? You notice that? Why do you see, verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how is it that you can go up to your brother and say in the most patronizing, ridiculous way. Oh, let me help you by taking the speck out of your eye. What Jesus wants his disciples to do, what he always wants us to do, is to take us deeper than the surface. Friends, he wants them to think about why it is they do that. What is it about the dynamic of the heart that, that makes that a very natural instinct. Oh my goodness, you know, like everything, any week you're preaching on a subject, a particular sin, you see it all over the place in your life. I wanted to see it all over the place in other people's lives, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? It's all over my own life. And there's this dynamic of self-righteousness that Jesus is pointing out that works this way. Because sin, sin has to, its defense, right? It's got to, its defense is an offense. It, to the degree that I'm convinced that I'm not okay, and by the way, all of us are convinced we're not okay. To the degree that I am convinced in my heart that I'm not okay, then my heart is going to be a passionate speck hunter in other people's lives. Because if I know I can't ultimately satisfy the vertical standard, I've got to console myself by making sure that I'm better than the guy on my right or my left, by whatever your metric is. Take your virtue that you uh, think you don't do well on and that you're concerned about being uh, measured uh, against a higher standard than you're able to achieve, whatever that metric is. Whatever, 
whatever it is. I mean, it could be parenting. It could be, you know, a loving character. It could be generosity. It could be Bible knowledge, whatever it is. There is something about the dynamic of self-righteousness that sets us out on a hunt to make sure that we can find somebody who's worse off than we are. And I was reading something in John Stott this week, and he said this, and I just thought this was very helpful. He says, indeed, what we are often doing, now this is very profound, indeed, what we are often doing is seeing our own faults in others and judging them vicariously. So you think about somebody in your life who drives you absolutely bananas. They get on your nerves because they have this tendency to do the same thing over and over and over again. Well, you need to realize, according to John Stott, that you are viewing them, what you think you're viewing them through a window, the window of your disapproval. <laughs> Look at them out there doing that again. It's what they always do. And John Stott says, that plate of glass that you think you're looking through is actually a mirror. And he says the reason self-righteousness works that way is that way we can experience, listen to this, oh, this was so good. That way we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. (laughs) That's a big problem. We're very broken But the wonderful news of our passage is that Jesus tells us there's a healing for our judging, and that's our second point. There is a healing available for our judging. And Jesus gives us an amazing prescription here. He says that in verse 5, he says that there is a legitimate path to our brother's speck. Now let me explain what I mean. You might think that given the magnitude of the disease and the pervasive nature of the disease of self-righteousness that infects uh, our uh, judging faculties, you might think that the uh, the only thing we could do, the only thing that Jesus could tell us to do, given how dangerous uh, that that self-righteousness judgment is, it would be to just forswear it altogether. You know what? Electricity is too dangerous. We're, we're, We're going back to kerosene. Just going to get rid of the whole thing. And Jesus doesn't do that. This is one of those passages, guys, where, and maybe, maybe, maybe this is relevant to you young people, maybe it's relevant to you older people. If you stop skimming the Bible and actually slow down enough to read and think about the sequence of thought in the things that Jesus says, you will be amazed. There is always more there than you think, and there is frequently the very opposite there of what you have always assumed was there. And you know what happens? You get wise. Because it does not take wisdom at all to say, electricity with no restrictions or no electricity. Listen, you can teach a computer to do that. That's binary, off or on. 
But that's not a person. People are not binary. The human heart is not a machine that you can give machine language instructions to. We're people. We need wisdom to live. And wisdom looks at situations and very often finds that the black and white rules are not wise. They're simplistic. Jesus is very shocking here. He says that the remedy in verse 5, I want to show this to you, but first I want to introduce it. He says that the remedy for our judgmentalism, our self-righteousness, is not to reject all judgment, but he in fact affirms our ability to judge. In fact, you notice in verse 5, listen to this. You hypocrite. Now that's a little tough. And what Jesus means by that, I mean, the way to translate that is, you poser. Does that connect? You poser. You you, You act like you're this, but you're really another thing. You poser. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See what Jesus assumes? He assumes there is a speck in your brother's eye. Oh! Then you were right! But that's not all that's there. That's not all you need to see. He also assumes that there's a blind spot on your side of that relationship. And so he says, yeah, you've got a log. You've got a beam. You've got this massive, and the word is, um, most of the commentators think that the speck is a splinter, and the, the thing that gets translated as a log is a beam. And most commentators think that Jesus is speaking as a carpenter. Taking images from his own experience. And Jesus is saying, remarkably, there is a speck in your brother's eye. And, right? And there's a log in your eye. And amazingly enough, there's a way for you to still move toward your brother's speck without being disqualified from doing that by the existence of the log in your own eye. How many times have you had somebody tell you, well, hey, he who has no sin cast the first stone, as though you're totally disqualified if you're not perfect from ever making any moral distinctions that apply to anyone else, which is not what Jesus is teaching. He's saying you got to own your garbage before you talk to someone else about theirs. You see, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying there is a path to your brother's speck. There is one legitimate path to your brother's speck. And it, it leads from your heart through the dark forest that you own, that you planted, that you grew, that you've tended, and all those logs that belong to you. There's a path to your brother's life, but it passes through your logs. And you've got to go through those woods. You've got to remember that tree and that tree. You have to to take an accurate measure of, of 
your own sin. You cannot sit on the porch of your little cottage surrounded by trees and take your telescope and look all the way through the gap in the trees into your neighbor's life and say, aha, a speck, I think I'll send him an email. Or I'll tweet it. Jesus says, no, you got to get off, off the porch. you got to push the telescope away. you got to go for a walk. And the walk goes through your woods. And you get to the end of your woods. And then in the clearing, between you and your brother, there's another tree. And it's Jesus' tree. It's the tree on which he was cursed. It's his cross. You've got to go with the memory fresh in your mind of your logs. And then you've got to go and you've got to look again at the cross and the memory of Jesus' tree where, where he bore all the price and the cost of my logs. The beams on which he bore the cost of my beams. And only then, when you have those memories of your trees and Jesus' tree, where he bore the judgment of God in your place, not the judgment of men, but the judgment of his Father, righteous Father, against your sin, against everything that was in your woods. Once you've gone along that path, then that path will change you so that when you get to your brother, you will not get there as a prosecutor. You will not get there as a self-righteous smug jerk. You will get there not as some kind of critic who is self-serving rather than other-serving. You will arrive in your brother's life as an advocate who is so overcome by your deliverance that you cannot be motivated to do anything except be helpful to your brother. He's got a speck in his eye. He's got a splinter in his eye. Have you ever had something like that in your eye? Oh, my goodness. It's painful. Could you walk by somebody who is writhing in pain with something like that in their eye? No. You couldn't do it. Friends, Jesus Jesus is saying something so astonishing here that the only way to cure, that there is a path to our brother's house. There is a path by which we we need to feel that we're being sent and commissioned. And I'm kind of bleeding my last point into this middle one now by which we can be helpful to our brother, but it leads through our own logs, past the tree that Jesus bore our judgment on. Friends, because the only way to cure us of this disease of self-righteousness in our judgment is for us to know that we're justified. It's only to the degree that we can be certain that there's an answer for our logs 
for our sin that we can be freed up from the need to compare ourselves favorably as against our brother and to go in such a way as to push him down. You see, the way self-righteousness works, the way I explained the dynamic a couple minutes ago, is I survive by pushing other people down. And the amazing thing about the gospel is Jesus went down for us and didn't have to be pushed. He went down willingly. He was cursed on that tree with the judgment that we deserved because he knew that there is no way that any of us could bear that weight. We have no idea. We think we see our logs. We just see the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying... I have come into the world. You're a human being. God made you in his image. This judging and evaluating and making moral distinctions, I mean, that, that, is, that is the essence of being a human being. For you to live or to listen to your culture tell you that what it means to be a human being is you're not supposed to, you're, you're supposed to have a blank slate as you approach the world. That is to deny what it is to be human. We are kings. But we're broken. We're so broken. And Jesus is is saying, I have come as the true king who is setting all things right. And in order for me to do it, in order for you to be right, I must be made wrong in your place on the cross. And I am willing to go down for you. I am willing to do that. And when I do that, and as you know that I've done that, then your life, as you, as you increasingly appreciate, and that's really what it is, it's never, it's never totally, right? It's just this growing appreciation for the reality of what Jesus has done for us, where he was willing to go for us. As that continues to flood over into our lives, friends, our judging, like every other part of us, will be healed. And we'll move into someone else's life to want to help them, to want to love them. So, amazingly enough, the disease in our judging is not our judging. It's the self-righteousness. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. He says, I will take your unrighteousness and provide you with a certain answer for it in my own body on that tree. And I'll prove it to you by my resurrection. And once I've healed your judging, I've got a mission for you. I want you to move into people's lives. I want you to be helpful. I'm not just giving you permission to move into your brother's life. I'm giving you a commission to move into his life. Look, verse 5. Did you not see the mission he put you on, Christian? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He expects you to move toward your brother, to help him. And because you followed that path that he's described, you'll do it it in humility and you'll do it in love. You'll do it to be helpful. Because people matter. Jesus is saying that there are two great reasons that he has this mission for us as his people with respect to the, the recovery and the healing and then the use of uh, the, the gospel-redeemed use of our judging. It's because people have value. And the kingdom of God has value. People have value. That's what he's saying in verse 5. The kingdom of God has value. 
That's the second reason in verse 6, and that's where I... Well, actually, let me say this before I move on to the kingdom. Husbands, when you move toward your wife with criticism, do you think she's convinced that you're her advocate? When you roll your eyes at the speck? Wives, when you roll your eyes at your husband's speck, do you think he's convinced that you're his advocate? I want you, spouses, I want you, to, I want you now mentally, it might be good for you to close your eyes, and I want you to move mentally to stand as your spouse looking back at you. What is the log that they see in your eye that you can't see? Parents, I want you to move now from where you stand vis-a-vis your children, and I want you to do that exact same thing and look at yourself through your children's eyes. What is the log that they see in you that you don't see? Church members, I want you to think about your difficult relationship if you have one in the church. And I want, you to, I want you to visualize, instead of looking at that person, I want you to visualize how you, what they see when they look at you. What is your log? See, unless you do that, whatever you have to offer that person is not going to be the gift of an advocate. It's going to be the payload of a critic, a self-righteous critic. But Jesus has a mission that doesn't just uh, end within the church. It, it, it has a focus on other people, even outside the church. And that's what verse 6 is about. And that's where I want to finish this morning because it's very shocking. It's very shocking. Um, it needs to sink in. Listen to verse 6 again. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Friends. It needs to sink in for us that these are categories in Jesus' mind. This isn't Matthew. This isn't me. This is Jesus who's saying this. And he's talking about people. Jesus, there, there are so many shocking things in that verse. Jesus is saying that there are people that he is requiring his disciples to identify as dogs, scavengers. And people who he requires, he's commanding them not to give the treasure of the gospel and the news of his kingdom to people who fit these descriptions. That means that Jesus is saying there is a limit to his grace. And I know that bugs you to hear that, but it's true. Jesus is saying, my Christian brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying that you have to be very aware that these are real categories for the king. You're required as followers of Jesus to obey these commands. Now, they are like electricity, aren't they? They're powerful. And we're not supposed to use them loosely They're not being given to us to rationalize lovelessness or to rationalize uh, breaking a relationship off with somebody 
abruptly. What Jesus is wanting us to do, again, you see, there is a huge difference between simple binary black and white rules that require no wisdom, that require no relationship and dependence upon Jesus, so you have to seek his counsel, that have no ambiguity. There's a huge difference between that and wisdom. Jesus wants to make us wise. And we in ourselves are not wise. So the only way we're going to get wise, the only way we have any hope of making these kind of decisions and obeying Jesus, I mean, how in the world, how in the world are you going to obey verse 1, obey verse 5, and obey verse 6? How are you going to do that? You can't apart from abiding in Christ. You can't unless you ask your Father to give you wisdom. I think that's why verses 7 through 11 are where they are in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Matthew knows he's brought us to the point. Jesus has brought us to the point by the end of verse 6 where we go, this is impossible. And so Jesus says, seek your Father. He will guide you. Knock. But what's the impact of verse 6 on non-Christians? It feels very serious to me. It, it, It feels very serious to me as a pastor because Jesus is describing people who have been around the gospel, who have heard it, who've been around his people. He's not describing people who reject the gospel the first time he hears it. They hear it. He's talking about people who have been around the gospel, have been hardened, not softened by the gospel, who have begun to treat the gospel and the availability of God's mercy in Christ as though it were a common thing in the way that a dog would scavenge through garbage or the way a pig would not be able to recognize a pearl, which in uh, that context was worth much more than a diamond. And friends, that kind of thing happens inside the church. It's very easy. It's very easy and very frightening that Jesus has these categories. Oh, how I long for these categories to sink in, to sink into my heart, to sink into yours, not to license from my side or from the side of my Christian brothers and sisters, not to license disengagement from people, but to to engage with the value of the gospel. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying the kingdom, the news of the kingdom of God is so precious that when you share it with somebody and their lives manifest an absolute and utter disregard for its value, it is time to move on because if you do not, you are not acting in light of its true value. You are letting them think that it is a common thing, that it is an assumption that they can just hold on to. It's Jesus' job to give me forgiveness. It'll be there tomorrow. It's just just as much as it's here today. I think a lot of people think that way. 
And if you're one of those people, I plead with you to stop thinking that way. Our lives are vapors. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is so valuable. And he's going to tell us in Matthew 13 that it's so valuable that once you see it, you are willing to sell and to give away everything that you have in order that you may gain it. And, from, and you'll do that over, with joy. The, a relationship with Jesus Christ is a marriage. It's a marriage. Don't ever confuse. My great concern is that it is for the person who thinks of that relationship with Jesus Christ, not in terms of what a marriage is, but in terms of a conjugal visit. Who, who comes to Jesus for certain things, but in effect withholds most of their life and their commitment from him. And you see, that's the one thing that Jesus is saying you can never do. And that's Jesus' judgment. So friends, if you look at your life and you think that you are acting as kind of a scavenger around the gospel who doesn't appreciate the treasure that it is, if you think and you honestly search your heart and think that you might have walked over the pearl of the gospel, there is no time like the present. Oh, friends, if you could have been here yesterday for Bob Rich's memorial service, what starts as a little seed in somebody's life, what it grows into under the grace of God is so beautiful and so majestic. That's what Jesus wants for your life with this warning. That's what I want for your life with this warning. Let's pray. Father, we aren't wise enough to live this out on our own. This is so much responsibility and so much privilege. And we're amazed again at your purpose in the gospel. You have such big plans for us. And Christ's work is so sufficient and all the roads lead to the cross and all the roads of living lead from the cross as well. Help us to see that again this week and change us from the vision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and